Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Just Another Kill Team podcast, where we bring someone else's local kill team scene to you. We're here this week with Northern California with Shay and John. Hello. Hello. Great to be here. They're here to talk to talk with us about developing their local scene in Northern California and experiences going to the Bay Area Open, right? Absolutely. Yeah, the Bay Area Open was just this last weekend. Uh, yes. Which is actually a little ways. Uh, listeners, it's, you know, sometime will have passed. Yeah. And Jonathan actually, or John, took Wormblade to the Bay Area Open. How was that experience um, as a small tournament runner going to a bigger tournament? Well, it was a wonderful experience. Um, this was the biggest event that I've been to before. And um, through dealing with uh, some of the more competitive players that have come to our tournaments um, out in the Sacramento area, I was given kind of the hard sell that I should uh, try to come out if I could. And I'm very glad that I did because it was a wonderful experience. Even though I didn't do very well, I still got to meet lots of great players, lots of you know new friends that might be able to come out to our tournaments and connect with a lot of content creators that probably all of our listeners are familiar with. Yeah, as at the moment, I think whenever I go to a tournament, it's always nice to see some familiar faces. And it's always there's, you know, the community is still pretty small. So going to these larger events can help you meet a lot of uh, fun people. Because yes. you, know, you guys bumped into the Bay Area tournament squad. <laughs> from what I remember. Yeah. Yes. Um, going back a couple months, um, Shay and I had decided to run a doubles tournament. We had heard about uh, a similar format that was being used at Adepticon, and we decided that we wanted to try to run the same thing. And so what we did was uh, we found a few people in Discord to reach out to that had participated in that doubles tournament and kind of uh, picked their brains on that. And Shay and I both looked at some Twitch stream footage and decided to try to reverse engineer the rules that were used in that tournament and try to run our own. And through that, I was able to get in contact, or I was contacted by Mr. Chris Bakke of the Bay Area Tournament Squad, BATS. And he and another member, Rachel, were able to come out to that tournament and participate in it, and they actually ended up taking first place. And from there, we've just been able to kind of grow the communication and connection with the BATS, and that led to me being able to come out to BAO. Very cool. How many people did you have for your uh, team tournament? I assume both you and Shay participated, or were you both a TO? We That's did, yes. That's a fun story, yeah. So we were looking at having six teams and 12 players overall, but on the day of, we had somebody drop, and so we ended up, we, we, I think we had 10 players, which wouldn't have worked out for a doubles tournament. And so yep. I was planning on just being a TO, but I decided to play, and not only did I have to play one team, but I had to play two teams. And I faced off against Chris and Rachel in the first round. Um, Chris was bringing his Hand of the Archon, and Rachel had her Legionaries. And that was pretty rough. So, so on one board, I was doing Wormblade, and on another board, I was doing my Legionaries. And that was, that was quite an education as to um, the, the ability that the, that the bats bring to the, to the table. And so that was, it was a wild tournament, but having to do that was essentially what allowed us to have everybody that showed up play. Otherwise, we would have had to ask a couple of people to leave, and we didn't want to have to do that. Yeah, that is the constant struggle for running these larger tournaments, kind of uh, 
you don't have enough people, then getting a buy is just kind of sad, especially when you put in the work of coming to a tournament and stuff. So that's sure. always something I struggle with. Yeah, you know, the, the struggle is real <laughs> up in Sacramento, <laughs> Sacramento area too, huh? Absolutely. Yep. How many? Um, how big has your general scene been? So your your team tournament, you guys got around ten people, which is not bad. Um, but what's your normal tournament turnout or kind of like weekly turnout like? I think we've done three, four now. It's usually between eight and ten. And so um, our like weekly kill team nights can range anywhere from eight to ten to, you know, just two or three people. Um, and uh, I've been trying very hard not to let the, the dips demoralize me too much. I know there was a little bit of a run there where I think it was just me and John for a couple of weeks. And uh, we were both getting a little bummed out. But uh, things have been growing a lot more lately. And so not quite as despondent as we have been in the past. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, how long have you been doing like the weekly Kill Team Nights? So it's probably been six months now, maybe a little longer than that. I'm, I have a bad memory, so it's hard to say. But um, yeah. We uh, we have been pretty consistent at it. I don't know if we've missed a Thursday, maybe one for the holidays. Yeah. So my my first experience with Shay's group, and it must have been going on at least a week or two before I got there, was the week in November right before Thanksgiving. I had been painting miniatures for quite a while, and I played a little bit of Kill Team in the first edition. But with COVID and everything, I had really not been able to get many games in. And so I got to a point where I was starting to get a little anxious knowing that the addition change was probably going to come at the three-year mark, and I wanted to really be able to play this game before it changed again on me. So when I found Shay's uh, posting on Discord for a weekly meetup, I was really excited about that. And from the first time going out and playing with with the folks there, I, I knew this was something I wanted to be a part of. And... Probably around the uh, the end of the year is when we started talking about what we could do to grow the community. And in February, that that was when we hosted our first tournament. Like this this February? In February of this year, yes. Wow, that's pretty good. I mean, first tournaments are always fun. You guys have a home store. You want to shout it out a little bit? Sure. So uh, I got started at A1 Comics. And uh, the, uh, the how I ended kind of arrived there was uh, it was a little bit of a, a, a journey, I guess. There was a, a couple of other shops that I'd been kind of bouncing off of, but uh, I started the entire Warhammer hobby about two years ago, so right in the middle of COVID. And uh, the kind of my original home had, had gone away, and so I was looking for a new spot because I never actually gotten to play Warhammer before. And I'd driven by A1 Comics. It's, you know, very near where I live. And so I decided to just kind of go in there and check it out. And they had a Discord, and I I jumped on there and got a couple of games of, of 40k of uh, big hammer and uh it was good and i was you know enjoying it and it was fun but uh it never really uh, sparked joy in my heart and then um my neighbor mentioned to me that he was playing uh song of ice and fire and i was like oh you gotta you gotta get rid of that stuff and just come over here and play some play some 40k with me and he's like well i don't know i'm not really ready for that kind of a commitment and so I said, well, I've heard of this thing called Kill Team that's kind of a little bit of a lower commitment. You only need a box or two to get started, and we could give that a shot. And uh, so we bought the starter pack, the the one with the, the Octaris scatter terrain and the vet guard and the commando box. Uh, we went halvesies on it, and I took the commando, or I took the vet guard, and he took the commandos. 
and uh, we started just playing in our living room. And he he started talking about wanting to get uh, like a spec ops narrative campaign going. And I said, well, we got to find some more people to do that. Well, what about this A1 comics shop where I played a couple of Warhammer games? Maybe we can get something going there. And uh, sort of in the intervening uh, time there, I'd also bounced off another group. It's the Placer County, uh, Nevada County Warhammer group. And I noticed that they had grown really fast. And one of the things that I observed, you know, lurking in their discords is they posted relentlessly about their Kilty or their, their Warhammer Knights. They play 40K uh, on the Discord, like posting pictures and, you know, reminding people of their 40K Knights like several times a week. So I started doing that on the A1 Discord and, uh, I like to think that it's paid some dividends because now we have a decent number of regulars. Um, so if I can credit one thing with, with getting us off the ground other than the tournaments, it's definitely the relentless promotion on discords. Yeah. And, and that's how I saw it. So it has to have to have worked at least a little bit. And A1 Comics has been really uh, has been really uh, helpful in promoting our little scene too. They've been putting up a lot of cool boxes and things like that as tournament prizes, which I know in our first couple of tournaments was definitely like getting people, coaxing people out of their out of their caves or out of their their regular shops to come out to us and uh, win. Let's see, we had a Geller box box for our first tournament, and we had a Breachers box for our second tournament. And I know a couple of people said, I wasn't really thinking about doing it. But then I thought, well, I get that Breachers box. Maybe it's worth it. So I know that uh, A1 putting those putting those boxes up definitely directly improved our uh, our scene. Yeah, price support definitely does help drive tournament attendance from what I've seen. <laughs> Have you had, so you've mostly been advertising on Discord. Have you tried any other uh, things in your areas like um, like flyers or anything for A1, kind of like in other shops? You know, I did. Uh, I made up a little flyer and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I, if it if it brought anybody in, they never mentioned it to me. So I, I kind of held off on that because, one, I was wasting a decent amount of paper printing them out. <laughs> and two, it just didn't seem like it was it was doing us any good. Yeah. So discords, huh? Discords are the, the modern age. It seems it, like it, yeah. Seems to be working for us, yeah. Um, a few weeks back, we created our own Discord, and I was able to bring that information to BAO, and uh, I played against a number of players that are within driving distance of Sacramento, so we do have uh, some new folks that joined recently, so uh, we'll, hope, we'll hope to be seeing them at our next tournament as well. Sounds great. So how big is your, the kind of like the community that you guys have? I know you've been saying that there's like eight or nine people that show up week to week, but it, it's mm -hmm. probably not the same eight or nine people each week would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. That, we, oh, go ahead, John. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, that's correct. Um, it, it's kind of funny. Every time we do a tournament, we see some people that we've never seen before. And from week to week, there's probably a rotation of maybe 12 or 15 different people. And we might have, you know, half of them show up. And uh, through communicating with another store in the area, I found out that there was another siloed group of 10 or so players that we've never really met before. So we're definitely trying to, you know, bridge the gap and, and bring everybody, if not coming to our, our weekly nights at the same time, then at least being aware of what we're doing in the area and uh, making themselves available to come out to those tournaments. And that first tournament in February was really a breakthrough for kind of the, the siloing because there are all these teams and there are teams, there are all these groups and they're all on their own discords and they're not really paying attention to what other shops are doing unless it's something worth coming out for, like a tournament with a prize. And so 
was actually kind of a deliberate move on John and I's behalf to to like get this tournament, this first tournament going, to try and pull people out of those those little insular groups, and I think it worked to a to a some degree. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a great plan. Um, one thing that we've done in our local scene here in Minnesota is um, we created a league, and the way the league works is um, the whole thing is just like. Um, let's see, it was like two months long and then we just, I used BCP and then just did next round and submitted double loss for everyone until we had four pairings available for every single person. And then people could just log into BCP and see who their four opponents were. And then over the next two months, they needed to find time and, and space to play those games. And then they would just like feed the results back in the discord. And then that, that's just been like one of the mechanisms that we've used to smear together all the different scenes. So like people Um, on like the South side of the city, people on the North side of the city, and then just like anyone that, that like signed up for it now, like has a commitment to like reach out and play with someone that they haven't necessarily ever played with before. And it's been going really well. I think we're actually slightly ahead of schedule. I think we're on like week four, Five, and we're pretty close to finishing a lot of the games. That sounds great. I love that. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I uh, one thing that I noticed, and this might be uh, a unique feature of where we are, right on I eighty, is we've had quite a few travelers show up. Sometimes for events, and sometimes for our, our kill team nights, where it's somebody who's maybe from SoCal or uh, or you know somewhere on the Northwest, and they just happen to be driving through, and they stopped off for the night and they looked us up on BCP and just showed up, which, you know, I, I can't say that I've ever packed my kill teams when I travel, but I have a lot of respect for people who do that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Wait, are you guys putting your weekly meetups on BCP? Uh, no, no, we, oh, no. We, uh, we did have somebody who was just kind of traveling through show up for one of our tournaments. Mm, yeah. I've actually had, we had a person from, France show up with Wormblade to a tournament, I think last year at some point. He found us on Reddit. Sounds like a pretty cool guy. Yeah, he just he was like on Reddit, like, oh, I'm going to uh, New York, you know, in the next couple months. Like, is there like a kill team scene? Someone's like, oh, there's a tournament, so you can bring your bring your army. (laughs) So you'd be surprised at how many people just want to get their get their games in while they're out and about. Would you check your kill team or would you carry it on? I have always uh, carried it with me. I, but I'm also a traveler that doesn't check anything if I okay. can help it. So Same. I have two bags and everything is carried on me, so I can get in and out. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to wait. Well, I've seen how they load that luggage too on that. Yeah, really. Thing. Oh yeah. No, I had to repair not. a broken neophyte within the last couple of days, so I would definitely uh, carry on my team. Yeah, when I went to New Mexico, I carried it. Whenever I fly, it's like in a box on my small bag. <laughs> so I've definitely been there. It's something I really got to work on. I've just got crates and crates full of stuff. I'm going to compact all of my things. Yeah, it's either magnets or getting a bunch of foam inserts and just chucking everybody into a non-moving box, which is rough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you have any um, like fun player stories from Stockton that you guys want to share? Maybe like a rivalry that's popped up or... Uh, someone who got really grumpy or, you know, had a lot of fun arguing rules with someone and then things evened out at the end. Well, we're, we're mostly in the Sacramento area. Um, Sacramento. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I can't, I can't really think of any, any wild and crazy stories other than the fact that I had to play two teams in a double tournament. For me, that is my craziest story. 
Yeah, I think we've been really fortunate in the fact that everyone is pretty chill. I think I think some of that comes from the fact that, with rare exception, most of the people that we're playing with are really learning the game for the first time. And so yeah. there's not quite as much room for, you know, huge egos of, I know how to play this game and you don't, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's been a couple of really minor things, because I've been I've judged a couple of our little tournaments. There's been a couple of little minor things where somebody came away grumpy from my decision, um, but we haven't had any, like... I've been, I've been in some big hammer debates that have gone on for, like, 45 minutes about, like, fight sequence and stuff like that. <laughs> and we haven't had anything like that in Kill Team, at least so far. Shay has a good point there. We're, while we're a club and we're developing our scene we're not super, super competitive at this point. And a lot of the players that were coming in are either folks that are on the, uh, the Placer County Discord that are hopping in from Big Hammer and are just kind of curious about this other game that they can use their same models with, or they're folks that are just, you know, brand new to the whole hobby as, as a whole. And so I, I think of our, our store and our group as almost like kind of an incubator. We're, we're getting the players up to speed and then depending on how much, you know, how competitive they want to be, then they can decide how far they want to take it. Yeah, I think that's good. I think having a welcoming environment is super, super important for growing any given scene. So that's definitely a good a good starting spot. You can't be the spikiest team until, you know, people are ready <laughs> for it. All right, everybody, we're going to move on to one of our new podcast segments here. This one is called The Operative Showdown. So we're going to list a couple different operatives here and then uh, discuss which one is better and why. So here we go. Welcome to Operative Showdown. As far as like things where, because both of you play different teams from what I understand, right? Yes. So yeah, she, she's got a few different teams he likes to play. Okay. If you we were to have an Operative Showdown between the leader models for the Wormblade and the Hunter and the hunter clade um which ones do you think would be better the skatari alphas or the neophyte leaders if you were to compare and contrast their usages on their given teams like who's more critical hmm i would argue and this is coming from a perspective of only yeah. understanding Wormblade from the other side of the board i would argue that the alpha is really the linchpin of the entire admec team like the admec team just doesn't have any tricks or gotchas or any way of you know leveraging an advantage against their opponent without that double activate and so uh i feel like if you took the if you took the alpha out of the team it would even if you replaced him with another another operative it would be very difficult for that team for the team to really do much to to function in a competitive way i don't know if that's necessarily as much the case with the wormblade leader I think I would probably agree. Um, the the worm the uh, the wormblade's neophyte leader can be useful. Um, there's an ability that he has called Shadow Vector that allows you to use one of two tactical ploys for free. One is Slink into Darkness, which allows one of your models that just activated to flip back to conceal, and the other is Coiled Serpent, which allows one of your operatives that just flipped from conceal to engage to turn or upgrade a normal hit into a crit and that could be on shooting or or in melee so those are both useful tools but i would say the cult agents that you can bring with the Wormblade team are the most important models in the team even though they're not in charge of the team essentially 
Yeah, so yeah, I'd that's, agree. That's yeah, been what I've seen for Wormblade players. It's generally the agents that are doing more of the heavy lifting, and the leaders doing the supporting roles. Mm-hmm. For for the admic, have you ever actually used the princep models, or have you only ever taken the alphas? I have speculated about the princep, especially the uh, um, the infiltrator guy. I don't recall his name. the The one that gets the free mission action. Mm-hmm. The trick is, though, is you can already do that with an equipment, so it's a little superfluous. I suppose you could then put the skull on the servo skull on somebody else, and then you would have two units that could then then uh, do free mission actions. But again, the, just the utility from the from the uh, alpha. Not to mention the fact that they've got a pretty decent pistol, too, with the arc pistol. And being able to double activate in a flexible way, right? He can double activate himself with somebody else. So maybe you activate him with the Sicarian and uh, one of the melee specialists. And then you shoot him with you shoot your target with the arc pistol and then immediately charge him with the Sicarian and finish him off. I know that actually happened to me on the other side of the table when I was playing my intercession. And uh, I was feeling pretty confident that I could take a Sicarian with my assault intercessor. But I wasn't expecting him to group activate his uh, his leader and hit me with the pistol first. And so that obviously completely changed it. And then being able to group activate your surveyor into a gunner, if you've got a situation where you can set up somebody in obscuring to be shot, or just activating two rust stalkers at the same time and obliterating somebody in melee. So uh, yeah, to me, that it, it's not just that you can, you can group activate, but there's so much flexibility with it too, which requires forethought because it's all three inches from each other. So you have to kind of think about it ahead of time and set it up. But when you do... Uh, you can really get some pretty some pretty good swings. That makes sense. If um, if the neophyte leader doesn't compare favor- favorably to the alpha, which Wormblade models do you think are as critical of a linchpin mm-hmm. out of the four cult agents? Well, I, I I can't not mention the Keller morph. I love the Keller morph. Um, the the double shoot and uh, after killing somebody creating like a little aura of inspiration to other neophytes around. Um, that's, that's very much a utility piece that I like to use a lot, but, um, I, at, at the advice of some, some better players, I've started looking at the Sancta sniper more and the sniper's ability to remove obscuring and get no cover has definitely provided me some, some very fun shots, you know, from the other side of the board through a window and around a piece of, you know, rubble and stuff like that, that players were not expecting. So Sancta Sniper can definitely be a utility piece, but I'm also definitely really enjoying the melee prowess of the Locus. And that's a, that's a piece that's taking me time to, to really figure out how to use to best ability, but uh, the ability to charge fight, charge again within three inches, fight again, and then charge into somebody else if possible. That's, that's really a, a tech piece that I want to wrap my head around because I, I think there's you know, a, an amazing amount of utility there. Yeah, that makes sense. The Wormblade are one of those very, very deep teams as far as the individual tactics that each model can apply themselves to. Whereas the Admech leader, the, Van- the Alphas, are really more of a strategic piece that gets some tactical decision. Um, one of the things that I found really fun with the alpha is that you can set up the first control edict on turn one, have the guys go off, and then move the leader off to set up for turn two's play, which is which is fun. So you're not just, so you're prepping for turn two at the end of turn one. 
Yeah, and that's something that I honestly struggle with is, uh, you know, I'm still a very new Kill Team player. And I feel like I'm just barely starting to get to the point where I'm not playing reactively all the time. I'm actually thinking ahead, okay, what is the next turn going to be? Or what is, you know, what is my actual game plan for this entire game? Where am I deploying my guys? Where am I hoping they're going to be at the end of the game? These are the kind of things that I obviously wasn't thinking about when I was starting this, this uh, game. And I feel like I'm starting to get there at least a little bit. And a lot of that comes from just getting comfortable with the team, the rules that come with the team. Um, Cause you kind of have to know what your team does first before you can start planning ahead. So that's definitely something I hope to get better at. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same boat on that. I would say that I know the rules pretty well and I can teach new players to play, but that's kind of why I've wanted to stick with Wormblade just because I don't want to be hopping from one team to the next and never really mastering anything, even though it's it's a complicated team and I've definitely had to take my lumps in a lot of games. I you know, I, I feel like I'm starting to put put all the pieces together. Have your players been um basically have, do you feel like your play group has basically been following the same play curve where people are now starting to slowly get more comfortable um with their own personal rules? So they're you know, more comfortable when they go to tournament play. It's not just asking questions on what they can do. I've definitely noticed that having, I think I've been doing the the judging part of it a little bit more than John. Um, our first couple of tournaments were definitely a lot of, hey, can I move here? Does this work? Is this legal? How does this work? What are these rules interactions? Of course, a lot of these things I was sort of learning and having to refresh myself on at the same time. So I'd WAPD open on my phone all the time. Um, but uh the 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 tournaments now are definitely getting more towards like do i really have line of sight here and the kind of uh, marginal questions that are maybe more typical in a bigger venue for a judge to have to settle uh, although i do kind of sometimes miss the the like hey what do you do here because it makes you feel a little a little uh, uh confident a little chuff when somebody's asking you a question that you know the answer to and you get to speak with authority on the matter of course i've done that and then been wrong so not always right but uh yeah i i think that's probably true that we have been seeing the our, our players get a little more comfortable with the general rules and now they're getting more strategic yeah yeah definitely, definitely. yeah definitely a rewarding part of growing a scene We've had one player in particular who started off with, uh, he started playing the Kazakin right when they came out. And uh, he came to our first tournament having, I think, played maybe one or two games ever before that. And of course, he got trounced. Um, but uh, he was a really good sport about it. And he came back for our next tournament the month after that, and he ended up winning it. And uh, he's been really improving a lot the last couple of months. And so it's been fun to, to see these folks growing and getting better. Yeah, I think Kazakhstan players overall are in a resurgence. I mean, especially you got, oh, yeah. you know, at least John was at BAO. He saw a Kazakhstan player take top spot. And in uh, and in that player's defense, he uh, he was doggedly loyal to them, even when everyone thought that they were really bad. So he is not a bandwagon <laughs> jumper. He was definitely committed to no. the team. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. And and uh, and he comes comes out and plays every Thursday night. And so I think that that's a credit to the advancement in his abilities as well. Yeah. It's very fun to like see people get better over time. You know, they hop on their discords, just like we have a discord to meet other players and that interconnectedness, finding new games. Super important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we're going to move right along into the next podcast segment. This one is called Niche Tactics. Enjoy. (laughs) 
So do you guys have any, I mean, John, you just went to play your first large mm-hmm. tournament. Were there any niche tactics that you found in the middle of the game that you hadn't seen before you hit your, before you went to this large tournament that were like novel things? Or was there something that you found that didn't work that you thought was going to work at, at, in a bigger tournament? Well, I, I would say in, in our local group, I'm the only Wormblade player. And so for going to this big tournament, there were many players that were familiar with Wormblade. And so there were probably some sneaky things that I was trying to do with my Locus that didn't work out because other players who have been playing a lot longer at that high level um, than I have saw coming. And so I would say that was the biggest uh, takeaway as far as what I tried to accomplish that didn't work out was some of the stuff that I, I thought I was you know, being real sneaky about, um, was, was sniffed out pretty quickly. But other than that, um, one of the other great aspects of going to this tournament was getting to see a bunch of teams that aren't played regularly in our local meta. It was my first game against Corsairs. It was my first game against Blooded. Um, it was my first game in several months against Star Striders. So that, that's another thing that I would champion about going to larger tournaments is just being able to expose yourself to other teams and other rules and just get a better feel for this, you know, the wider game. There's so many bespoke teams at this point that it would almost be impossible to be able to play against all of them in your local area. So definitely uh, broadening your horizons and going out and seeing some of that other stuff is, is a big benefit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Was there any particular, like something that you saw in one of the teams that you were like, wow, that was a really cool play. I, I think my favorite game was against Blooded, and just just I I had a foundational understanding of how the Blooded tokens work and and some of the different operatives and stuff like that. But that was that was a game that I really enjoyed. That was probably my favorite game of the tournament, and that was a it was a narrow loss, but I still had a great time, had a lot of fun with that opponent, and just got to you know experience to see how another horde team that you know gets gets killed pretty easily uh, is able to function. Well, and John, I wanted to maybe remind you that uh, there is that one tactical ploy that you were thinking about maybe making some more plays with in relation yes. to your locus. Yeah, so there's a ploy that I've never actually been able to use before called Unquestioning Loyalty. And it's, it's where if your neophyte leader or one of your agents gets charged and you have a different neophyte within three inches, they can charge in and they become the target of the fight. And so I, I was there. There was a a moment when I was playing against a legionary team. When after the fact, I was thinking, "Man, if if only I had had another neophyte nearby, I could have saved my locus." He um, he ended up getting obliterated by a power fist. So that <laughs> that didn't work out too well for me. Um, but yeah, so there's that's that's another reason why I want to you know stick with my team for you know for the foreseeable future because. Even though I've been playing them for a while, there's there's always more there's always more layers to that cult to uh, to uncover and get to take advantage of. You never actually got a chance to to pull it off against the blooded. I did not. Well, that that wasn't. Yeah, that in in the blooded game, I was able to use the locust in okay. in the way that I was expecting to. Yeah. But yeah, no, that another another opportunity had came up a little bit later on in the tournament that if if only I had positioned a little bit differently. And that's something that I think. Uh, Again, as we're sort of emerging into uh, a more uh, conscientious level of play, um, that idea of sort of playing against your opponent rather than just against the board. And um, I think, especially with operatives like the Locust, 
they're maybe more useful as like a threat piece where you put them in a spot where the your opponent isn't going to want to get into threat range or uh, you you use another piece like a like one of your neophytes a little bit of a throwaway piece to bait your opponent to do something that then you can punish with the locust and you know this kind of i know that this is probably not a new idea to admit to more veteran players but the fact that sort of i'm starting to step into that space and think about the game that way it's it's pretty exciting honestly yeah it is that's definitely one of the fun parts of playing a game as deep as kill team so and i think that's one of the credits to the kill team rules it's very it's relatively straightforward to learn you know maybe obscuring takes a lot longer for some people but the core like movement and shooting seems very straightforward until you start playing and then a lot of the tactical complexity really comes out over time yeah mm-hmm. i would definitely agree with that for the hunter clay do you have any um like special things that you do or for any of your other teams uh shay that you know you found very useful in your local scene or that you are only just now starting to see the uses for yeah so i have i have um a couple of different teams i've put a ton of reps in with vet guard uh, and then i kind of set them down and then i played a bunch of intercession and i just recently took them to one of our little local tournaments and then i've only played one game of uh, my uh, admec since i've sort of picked them back up and so with the admec i'm really just kind of trying to refamiliarize myself with the rules and with intercession they're such a straightforward team uh, there's not really too much I can say about them, but I did play uh, at least enough vet guard to start really thinking about like some of the some of the um, you know nuances of the team, I guess. And um, one of the things that uh, I saw, I you know got some advice on with vet guard is the the hardened uh, the hardened trooper, the hardened veteran. He is it seems like a real sleeper because he just is so good, especially if you give him the rosary. It's just taking a lot of damage, which usually the your, your operatives in the, vet, in the vet guard aren't particularly good at doing. And so putting him in a position where he's going to be drawing a shot from something that might be going into an operative that you'd rather not get shot, um, it really actually worked out pretty well. And I think I've won a couple of games just because he didn't die because of his feel no pain and his rosary managed to just burn and activate getting shot at. And then somebody had to charge him and finish him off or shoot him again. And so that was definitely a a little piece of advice that I thought really helped me out a lot. I also, I know that, again, this is probably not new to a lot of people, but I had an epiphany with the spotter in the the deployment. I realized that if I put my spotter in the last deployment group, especially if I'm the attacker, my opponent has to go totally on the board first. If they put anything in, uh, in, uh, in a light cover situation where I can see them, you can just deploy your your spotter and your sniper into cover, both conceal, and then they can essentially shoot that per, that other operative for free and, uh, right on the first turning point. And so that was another thing that, you know, again, it might not seem that, that exciting, but it was kind of an, aha, I can do this basically every turn or every game, and it's insanely safe. You, you know, basically are not, not risking anything by getting a free shot. If your opponent isn't anticipating that or isn't familiar with the spotter, you can, you know, potentially get up with a really good aha moment. That's actually a good uh, teaching moment, I think, kind of across the board, is that last deployment group, when you're the attacker, you should be angling to get some shot or at least keep keep it in mind. You know, not just for the spotter. Obviously, the spotter gets to do it the easiest, but even when you're playing other teams with plasma threats, like being able to look at where your opponent is set up and getting good vantage spots because you 
can look at your opponent's deployment is a really powerful part of deployment. So, you know, a good, a good lesson. Yeah, and that's something for a very long, for my really my entire kill team career, I've always felt like I kind of bungled my way through deployment. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just throwing guys down here. And that's obviously not a good way to approach it. And so, yeah, with that little operative and the, the, the synergy that he has with gunners, it kind of forced me to really think about that in a more, in a more strategic way. And uh, it's kind of opened the whole idea of, wait a second, I need to be more deliberate about how I deploy now. So, absolutely. Yes, I definitely also want to point out the uh, the same combo, but with the grenade launcher, and then just having him like hit one guy that's in light cover and have that blast hit multiple other targets, even if they're like in heavy cover. Like you hit him with a blast, and like I've seen that ruin some days. So that's definitely a potent combo to watch <laughs> out for. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a reason that they don't let you take the spotter with the uh, the new inquisitorial team, right? Absolutely. It's actually very crazy to me that the veteran guard spotter hasn't actually been changed to be in line with the rest of the teams, where it still works on heavy terrain. Yeah, I would be really sad, obviously, if they changed him. But, uh, well, I've kind of moved on from the vet guard, so I guess if they want to nerf him now, that's okay. <laughs> it's okay, you're already playing a nerf team with the admec, right? So, Well, I've heard people say... I've, I've heard people say that uh, obviously the nerf hit pretty hard, but that they're they're probably in a good place now, which is funny because every like you know uh, YouTuber or podcast or whatever that I listen to where they're talking about that kind of stuff, they always seem to be speaking like theoretically about about uh, the hunter clade. Like they seem like they're a pretty good team. They seem like they're fine, which I imagine comes from the fact that nobody must be playing them. Yes. But uh, we'll see if I can't make them work. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely been noodling around with wanting to play them more recently. I just don't have a lot of time to actually get tournament practice in, unfortunately. So I, they're, all of their stat sheets are still really good. Their core trick is still very strong. So I would not be surprised if you see me play Hunter Clay at a tournament in the future. To me, one of the barriers with them is uh, they're a very expensive team if you want to go all WYSIWYG because you have to have the different. You have to either magnetize your Sicarians or have a ton of them for all the different weapon options and all of the different Skitari and things like that. You're looking at several boxes, which can be a barrier. Yeah, and it's it's the same way with Wormblade with their character models. It's a it's a pricey one. That's probably another reason why I want to stick with them for a while. Yeah, Wormblade is definitely one of the more expensive teams. You've got four different character models and all the neophytes, so it can cost a pretty penny. I think that brings us closer to the end of our podcast episode. Did you guys have any uh, final call-outs to stores? Maybe another store that you're planning to um, hit up soon? Because you talked about A1 Comics. Is there, there are other shops in your area that it sounds like you guys are interested in trying out? Maybe by the time this podcast episode comes out, there'll be another spot you guys want to shout out? Uh, sure. I just want to once again thank uh, thank A One and the management there for for nurturing our little uh, our little kill team scene, the prize support that they've been doing, and just uh, just uh, you know putting the word out on their on their social media and stuff about our events and all that. Um, it, that uh, yeah, I just wanted to give them a big thanks. And then I think John had something he wanted to say too. Yeah, just the, there's some other little spots that we want to um, you know get get more acquainted with but i also want to give a shout out to everybody that i got to meet at bao um got to spend a lot of time with sheldon of kill team stream and the bats other bats members chris uh primarily and i also got to meet dakota and saya of 
quad games and everyone was just absolutely so wonderful and welcoming to me i had i had an absolutely amazing time and i look forward to being able to come back to bao next year yeah that's great sweet well thanks for coming on and thank you listeners for making it until the end if you're still here make sure to sign up on the discord so that we can chat more about coming episodes and other things